Hello and welcome to Interpreting India's first episode in the new year. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in this decade. I'm your host, Suresh Rai, and this week, we are discussing the rise and fall of India's economic growth. The pandemic has been very costly for the Indian economy, delaying India's journey to prosperity by at least two years. But lest we forget, India's economy was not in a good shape even before the pandemic hit. The official GDP estimates show a sharp slowdown since 2017, and investments and exports, the two major drivers of growth, have been sluggish through much of the decade preceding the pandemic. To help us understand India's growth story, we have we have with us Dr. Arvind Subramanian. Dr. Subramanian is a former chief economic advisor to the government of India, having served between 2014 and 2018. He is currently a senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at the Brown University. He is a widely cited expert on economics of India and China, and the changing balance of global economic power. Dr. Subramanian, welcome to Interpreting India. Uh, uh, glad to be on the show, uh, Suyash. Sir, our conversation today is about rise and fall of India's economic growth, and I thought it would be fitting to start with talking about how we measure India's GDP and its growth. And you have also been an important contributor to the debates around the new series that was launched in 2015, when the base year was changed to 2011-12. And uh, since the series was launched, there were many um, critical inputs. into the validity of the series and about 2 years ago you contributed to this debate by um, writing a couple of papers in which you basically try to validate the mm-hmm. estimates and you argued that because the correlation between the change in gdp and the change in some of the other economic indicators had broken down in the new series compared to the previous series it seemed that the gdp estimates didn't quite uh, pass the test of validation and they needed further work now since then two things i i noticed at least that one is that the sharpness of the decline in gdp growth has been captured to some extent one could disagree on the levels the other is the pandemic shock at least when i look at different variables that you had looked at in your paper prima facie it seems that the national accounts do capture at least to a substantial extent the what intuitively we see going on in the economy they like the first quarter of lockdown there was a 25% Around twenty-five percent decline in real terms in economic output. Perhaps the underlying database has become more stabilized and improved the quality. Perhaps CSO is taking into account some of the critical inputs and improving. Do you think there is a case to be made that the quality of estimates may have improved in the last couple of years? You know, it's worth stepping back and you know, at the risk of getting a little bit too. uh detailed and complicated but it's a you know podcast for nerds in any case so let's kind of uh, uh indulge a little bit look i think one has to distinguish i would say two or three you know uh periods of the data of the data revisions hmm? so the first set of data revisions about which uh i wrote was you know when the data changed methodology changed 2015 so from 2011 12 we had new numbers and my original work was from the period 2011 12 to about 2017 18 yeah 
And there, uh, as you quite rightly said, while others focused on, you know, data quality, data input, deflators, uh, all this stuff, I took a slightly different tack and said, look, I don't want to get into all the weeds of uh, the methodology, but can it be validated by looking at other major macro indicators, you know, uh, like exports, credit, uh, uh, you know, uh, imports, trade, uh, uh, capital goods, uh, IIP consumption. So a bunch of profits, a bunch of other major macro indicators, which also we think proxy the macro economy. And there, what, uh, you know, I found very, uh, very simply that that correlation between GDP and those indicators, which was there before the change, kind of broke down after the change. And it was really striking how the decoupling happened. You know, uh, just to give you an example, you know, uh, I think exports declined by something like 13 percentage points on average. Investment declined by about 15 percentage point on average in the post-2011-12 period. And yet all these declined massively. And yet um, GDP was actually either steady or slightly increasing. So that's phase one of the data. And I believe that was largely a technical problem, or at least I have confidence or like to believe that that was a technical problem. But then what happened, there's a second set of data revisions that happened, which is, you know, uh, the data from 2045 to 1112, you know, the backcasting, that got changed. And this has kind of gone under the radar. And there what happened was that the GDP uh, numbers were revised downwards, um, you know. And there I, I feel that that, you know, that downward revision also was kind of quite problematic. And in a recent um uh, you know, presentation, I showed that, you know, the implication of the downward revision for GDP going back, you know, uh, led to a forced revision of consumption, which just seemed completely implausible. So that's the second phase. That part, I cannot say, I don't know enough, but I can't say with any confidence that that was purely a technical problem in, in a way that I could say about the post 2011-12. Then there's a third period, which is 2019-20, where you're right that it did show a deceleration, but I feel that that deceleration was plausible enough for people to take their eyes off the, the level. Because if you look at 2019-20, Suyash, the GDP growth was 4%, and every other major macro indicator is either in negative or deeply negative territory. So, so now you might say, you know, all that matters is the trend and not the level. But to me, there the level matters for a very important economic reason, because it explains to me why the shock of the pandemic was the maximum in India. After all, you know, it was the same pandemic all over the world, but the decline in Indian activity in the first year of the pandemic was the biggest in the world. I think along with the UK, a, a, a downward division of about 11 percentage points. Now, why did that happen? Part of it was because of lockdown, I think. But I think if you look at the numbers, our fiscal response was kind of median. So that couldn't explain it. It seems to me, therefore, that another candidate is that actually even before we headed into the pandemic, the economy was, you know, actually had uh, shrunk. So COVID was a shock that hit an already very weak economy. And that weakness was not captured enough by the deceleration. In fact, it can only be captured by a collapse in economic activity. Now, 
post pandemic i think you're right i think uh, you know the the macro indicators seem to be tracking the gdp and i just haven't done enough uh, to, to have a strong view but prime affair shade seems that you know the pandemic is uh, uh, gdp has tracked it so we just have to wait and see going forward you know how these things track each other going forward Right, right. Now, uh, I want to take a step back and uh, talk about something that you've written extensively about is the slowdown that preceded the pandemic. In the 90s and 2000s, broadly, India was seeing uh, rapid growth. There were some uh, few years of, I mean, slowdown during the Asian financial crisis. There were major droughts in the early 2000s, then global financial crisis. But we were seeing uh, rapid growth in most of the years. In fact, our growth was about the same as the Chinese growth around that time. So what was the main kind of point at which the story turned and and why did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, uh, uh, I think in a sense, I think uh, Josh Feldman and I are more and more convinced that really the slowdown began uh, uh, around 2011, 12 uh, after the global financial crisis. Uh, and you see, it happened for a, a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, firstly, of course, uh, the uh, excesses of the, uh, the 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 boom, as it were, uh, left a large legacy, which uh, uh, Josh and I have called the twin balance sheet problem. Uh, and that's why you see, uh, you know, basically after 2011, 12, uh, credit growth and investment growth have completely uh, kind of collapsed. Uh, and also the world economy turned, so exports also collapsed. So those two big engines of growth, uh, investment and exports, uh, partly related to what we call the twin balance sheet, partly to the downturn in the world economy. So those two engines uh, collapsed. And of course, we know what happened, you know, uh, in the second UPA2, we had, you know, major problems. We had an inappropriate fiscal response. We had policy paralysis. We had corruption. We had, you know, all the Vodafone and the, uh, you know, very anti-market, anti-thing, uh, you know, policy actions. So I think that uh, began the slowdown along with the uh, uh, overhang of the excesses from from the uh, lending and, and investment boom. So we had a twin balance sheet problem. World exports declined. Uh, you know, government policy response started deteriorating very rapidly beginning in UPA2. Uh, and then, of course, uh, that legacy kind of persisted. And, you know, since 2014-15, you know, some things were done, some things were not done. So that weakness kind of continued. You know, there were other shocks like demonetization, uh, GST, um, which kind of also uh, things. But then on the other hand, there were uh, other reforms were done. So, so kind of basically it's a story more broadly of, uh, you know, the two big engines, long-term engines of growth collapsing uh, combined with, you know, a policy response that was either, uh, you know, kind of completely uh, inappropriate or in some cases inadequate. I mean, we, we still haven't, uh, you know, for, for 10 years, for example, we couldn't really solve the twin balance sheet problem. So, you know, investment and credit remained weak for a very, very long time. Uh, and, and of course, exports only now are picking up. We had very weak exports. So, uh, you know, policy could not reverse uh, the, the challenges of uh, uh, the, the, the fading away of the two big engines of growth. Remember, from 1990 to about 2012, the two people forget that the two 
engines that drove growth were investment and exports and trade more broadly. And those two engines collapsed after 2011-12. So in a sense, we've had a kind of lost decade of um, weak, I would say fairly weak, not absent growth, but fairly weak, tepid growth thereafter. I want to unpack this a little bit about the twin balance sheet problem. So the way I see it is that initially there was some forbearance in recognizing the depth of the problem. But by around 2015, the asset quality review had been done and substantially, at least the bad debts had come out into the open. Now, since then, it's been now for several years. What do you think has, uh, are the main factors because of which we have not been able to address this and, you know, yeah. So, so, uh, Suhash, remember that I, I think to be fair, I, I think the asset quality re- review revealed for the first time the magnitude of the problem, right? Then, uh, of course, there were all these discussions about whether we should do bad bank or not. So, so there was no real policy response. The transparency happened. You know, remember, I have this, uh, you know, fivefold, uh, you know, in order to solve a twin balance sheet problem, uh, I used to say that we need, uh, you know, the five R's, right? We need recognition, uh, you know, resolution, uh, reform, um, uh, you know, I forget what the other two are, but basically, uh, you know, first you need to recognize the problem and then you need to address it through, uh, you know, uh, cleaning up both uh, the firm and Resolution, exactly. Uh, resolution. Now, in terms of resolution, the, the, the first real thing was, in fact, the IBC. The resolution only happened uh, beginning in 2018, if you recall. You know, the famous circular was issued. Uh, some uh, initial things were sent to IBC. But then soon after, even that came to a standstill, essentially. Uh, and so in terms of actual action, uh, the resolution part of it, uh, you've had uh, 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 really uh, very little. And now, now even that has kind of, uh, you know, the IBC is in limbo. We now have a, a bad bank. We don't know what's happening really. So in some ways, if you step back and look at it, we really haven't, despite some efforts, haven't really come to grips with, uh, you know, the twin balance sheet challenge. But of course, lo and behold, and this is the irony, Suyasha, lo and behold, we've had 10 years of, you know, really treading water on this problem. The pandemic hits, you know, suddenly profits go up, uh, stock markets boom, uh, both firm balance sheets improve, uh, and, you know, NPAs come down to some extent also because of uh, you know, the, the recapitalization and things. So in a sense, the irony is that, you know, 10 years later, the, the problem seems to be better, but not because of any serious, you know, policy action, because, you know, uh, uh, the irony is that you needed a pandemic to cure the twin balance sheet challenge. But that's what seems to have happened, which is really, if you think about it, quite mystifying. Yeah, but uh, I'm not sure what to make of these numbers, because in a crisis, we tend to delay recognition of the impact. So if forbearance is really going on, the full impact of the pandemic may be seen only with a lag. Is it perhaps too early to say whether the balance sheet problems have really been overcome? Yeah, so so I completely agree. But at least the official numbers are saying that, you know, the problem is, is, you know, better. See, by the way, even the current numbers, the levels are still high. The NPAs are in the public sector banks are still more than double digit, if I'm not wrong. So, so the levels are still reasonably high. And as you quite rightly said, you know, we don't know what the aftermath of the pandemic is because remember that both the SME sector has had, has encountered three shocks in four or five years, you know, 
G- uh, demonetization, GST, and a pandemic, which have disproportionately affected the SMEs. And we also know that consumer balance sheets have also been uh, affected because we know labor market, employment, incomes have been very badly affected. So, so uh, I think we should allow for the possibility that maybe, you know, the, the NPA problem is maybe actually slightly worse. And as you quite rightly said, that will only become evident, you know, in, in, in a few years. Right, right. Now, uh, I want to spend uh, some time with you talking about the onshore regime, you know, in some sense. The the period of the 90s and the 2000s, where India's growth accelerated and then accelerated again. Yeah. If you took look at the narratives on political economy today, that period is considered to be, especially the 2000s are often considered to be periods of excesses, you know. And... Uh, uh, in some ways, the political economy order is being remade in a response to that uh, that order, if I'm not reading too much into it. So I want to test a few I mean, of these narratives with you and take your perspective on them. So one part of the strand of the narrative is that that old order was corrupt and there was considerable corruption that drove uh, the processes that ultimately created growth. And you just a few minutes back said that the growth was primarily led by investments and exports. And if I look at exports, quite a few of the exports are in complex products. Even the less complex products that we export, like petroleum and diamonds and all of those, are not the types of products that we have the raw material for. We we import and then add value in export. Similarly, on investments, largely were private investments. Now... But the narrative is about uh, resource raj, plutocracy. I mean, there's a certain stigma attached and you called it stigmatized capitalism. The question I want to pose to you is that, is is the tag of stigmatized capitalism built on actual material facts or is it more of a construction of a I mean, political contestation where one side is trying to, uh, you know, uh, basically delegitimize the other side by saying that you were doing too much corruption at that time? Or... Uh, can we disaggregate the story and say, okay, this is the part where the stigma is legitimate and there are other things that were going on that were not of that type. So how do you see the big picture? Yeah, so so that's a, I think it's a great way of framing this, Suyasha. But firstly, Suyasha, I would insist that, you know, India uh, has had, had three decades of, of uh, uh, Two decades of rapid growth and one decade of very rapid growth. So, uh, I mean, you see, remember the disagreement between Danny Roderick and me and the rest of the uh, 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 the rest of the crowd is not about whether uh, the 80s was rapid growth or not. Everyone acknowledges that in the 80s it grew at six. I mean, there was a takeoff. The only question is whether it was sustainable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so we've had three decades of very rapid growth: 80s, 90s. 2010 and then you know uh, then the, the the deceleration so so the, the question is we have to understand what kind of growth did we have before as you rightly said uh, the uh, uh, 90s and 2000s certainly uh, i would say let me be provocative here was very much an east asian model of growth driven by investment and exports Except that, and as you, uh, this is what Shomitro Chatterjee and I wrote, except that those were not comparative advantage-based exports in terms of, you know, textiles, clothing, uh, you know, uh, unskilled, relatively less skilled, but it was based on high skill, as you rightly said, not just in services, but also in manufacturing. So our manufacturing exports were very much 
tech intensive, high skill intensive, etc. That is why, of course, what happened was unlike in East Asia, the, the spread of the benefits of growth were less than they were in East Asia. And that's what I think has fed a little bit into this, oh, this neoliberal paradigm is, is not good, uh, therefore we need to change it drastically, etc., uh, etc. Et and, and maybe there is some truth to that. But I, I do think that we've had a very unique pattern of specialization based on, you know, and, and there are lots of reasons for that we can go into it. But now coming to the political economy of this, right? See, I think stigmatized capitalism is not a 2000s phenomenon. It goes back to, you know, our, uh, our license quota permitrage. Because remember, the key insight about stigmatized capitalism is that, that because we had this license quota permitrage, even the private sector that did well in that era, there was always the whiff of suspicion that it got ahead because of its proximity to government rather than because of being genuinely kind of competitive, well-governed, etc. And, you know, we don't have to name names, but, you know, there are lots of stories of, you know, big capital basically manipulating uh, the license quota, Raj, the minutiae of, you know, tariffs and excises to their advantage. So stigmatized capitalism is as old as, as you know, the social the license quota permit, Raj, itself. I think what happened was that in the 90s and early 2000s, there was this brief period when our services sector did well, you know, there was a sense that, aha, we've had a bit of a break with that because this is a sector that's grown not because of its proximity to uh, uh, government and the state, but because of its distance from the state. Uh, it's well governed. Uh, it's listed on foreign markets. Uh, you know, it's internationally competitive. There's no doubt about that. But then we had the 2000s, which kind of made us realize that, uh, you know, th that was an aberration because the 2000s were, you know, they were similar to the uh, to the license quota Raj uh, and different only to the extent that the form in which this happened was not based on getting licenses and manipulating tariffs and things. It was based on these you know, what we call the rents, you know, whether it's spectrum, whether it's land, whether it's coal. So, so the form of stigmatized capitalism changed. The fact of it did not change. And of course, then we had all the, the, the banking related stuff as well. But we know that banking has always been politicized. You know, credit lending has been always politicized. And, you know, both Viral Acharya's book and, and I, I think uh, uh, Urjit's book also say that. Then, you see, then, of course, and here's, I think, the interesting thing. So, uh, you know, you're actually making me think aloud. Stigmatized capitalism phase one was the license quota permitrage. Then we had the aberration where we thought uh, we'd kind of conquered it with us or overcome it. But then the 2000s, just it became a rents raj. So stigmatized capitalism still remained the form. Took. But then what happened was... Uh, I think, uh, you know, phase three of stigmatized capitalism. Remember in phase two, uh, there was something interesting about this uh, Suyasha. It was not just that the form changed, i.e. land, spectrum. You know, I called it, uh, you know, ethereal rents, which is uh, spectrum, uh, terrestrial rents, land, and subterranean rents, which was cold. So, you know, we had all these kinds of rents. But, but, but the other thing, Suyash, was that, you know, stigmatized capitalism phase two was what I would call anarchic stigmatized capitalism. It was an anarchy because 
there were many givers and many takers. So, you know, everyone was running amok on the giving side and on the political side, everyone was running amok on the taking side. I think stigmatized capitalism phase three is, you know, again, Suyash, you know, we don't have numbers. This is just speculation. And, you know, but, but it seems to me that one hypothesis would be that stigmatized capitalism phase three is from anarchic, uh, you know, stigmatized capitalism, it's become uh, a, a kind of oligopsonistic uh, 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 stigmatized capitalism where the number of real givers and the number of real takers has been shrunk to kind of a few. I don't want to, you know, get into numbers. And, you know, I call this stigmatized capitalism 2A, the 2A variant. But I think more broadly, it's about anarchic stigmatized capitalism giving way to much more oligopsonistic few givers, few takers. And, and, and so, so here's the interesting thing about it, therefore, Suyasha. I think there are two kind of conceptual, therefore, uh, conclusions we can draw. If what I'm saying is right, then I think you move from what Mansur Olson said from a roving bandit form of stigmatized capitalism to a stationary bandit, you know, and we know that, you know, stationary bandit means uh, actually, uh, you know, invest the tax on investment is a little bit less because there's less uncertainty. You know, you could argue that what business cares about most is not, you know, whatever bribing, corruption, uh, the level, but the variability and the uncertainty. So once you go to stigmatized capitalism, the oligopsonistic or 2A variant, uh, you get uh, you go from a roving bandit to a stationary bandit. One and second, this is very important for the politics of perception. When you have anarchic stigmatized capitalism, everyone thinks it's happening. You know, uh, you know because stories are legion. Everyone is following. You know, this guy is giving. This guy is taking. And, and you know, the the perception is that this is really rampant. But once you go to uh, 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 you know, oligopsonistic thing, people think it's actually come down because, you know, by definition, fewer givers and takers, the perception is, oh my God, all that thing has disappeared and people don't really focus on the few givers and takers. It's at least not as visible. So the perception of stigmatized capitalism, when you go from roving bandit to stationary bandit or from, you know, anarchic stigmatized capitalism to uh, to 2A variant is that the perception changes as if, you know, there's kind of less uh, rent-seeking and corruption. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, who can say we don't know, but certainly the perception changes and therefore, you you know, therefore, you know, you can, uh, people are willing to play this game and say, look, you know, stigmatized capitalism has gone away. It was there before. It's not there now. But I, I think it's because the form has changed, uh, the concentration has changed, and therefore the perception has changed. Yeah, so it makes me think whether we are moving from roving bandit to stationary bandit, or from many stationary bandits to only a few stationary bandits. But but, but many many stationary bandits is uh, more bad than one stationary bandit. I mean, depends. I mean, it depends on the level at which the deals are being made. So I mean, if if you look at the experiences of these East Asian countries, obviously in Korea and Japan it was basically one because uh, it was highly centralized, smaller countries, very competent bureaucracies making these kind of uh, decisions. But in China, this is much more decentralized. So local stationary bandits who are making these, uh, Shanghai cities making these with GM and others are making these with their own respective, in their own respective context. 
Can I make a distinction? So I, I think that when we talk about stationary and roving bandits, we, I think, refer to it over a common policy space, i.e. if they're spatially disaggregated, you know, uh, you know, in every local government, if there's one bandit, uh, that's essentially, you know, a, a basically a stationary bandit model. It's, it's only when over the same space there are multiple bandits or multiple things, then you get these problems of, you know, uh, is investment affected, et cetera, et cetera. So just, that's just a kind of definitional clarification. Right, right, right. So moving on to another theme that has become very common in India in recent years is that uh, earlier the political economy was very uh, accepting of informality and uh, informal employment enterprise, I mean, uh, low tax base and those kind of uh, realities. And now there's a, I mean, focus on formalizing the economy. So, I mean, by taking a variety of measures, whether it's demonetization, whether it's uh, taking, creating a certain comprehensive model of GST and so on. We want to actively formalize enterprises in India. And usually, I mean, the way one thinks about it in development economics is that structural transformation will happen and as a consequence, formalization will flow, flow from there in, in, the, in the traditional model. But here it's the other way with that the assumption is that we formalize and therefore we'll get a certain kind of growth and structural transformation. How do you see this story of the last five, six years of emphasizing on formalization as an objective in itself? Yeah. So, so I, I think, uh, Suyash, uh, I disagree with almost, uh, agree with almost everything you said, except with one major uh, uh, point of uh, uh, disagreement. Okay. So I think we all know from the development literature that, you know, formalization is kind of endogenous to development. You, you, you develop more, uh, you know, you're going to become a thing. And, um, and therefore, you know, kind of that's the way one should broadly think about formalization. However, I think you're right that, you know, after 2014 and generally even around the world, uh, people started saying, no, we can nudge uh, development itself by accelerating formalization. And therefore, we kind of uh, uh, nudge formalization. Okay. Now, I think there are two ways of doing, even if you believed in the causation from formalization to development, as opposed to the basic causation from development to formalization, I think there are many ways of doing this. There are kind of punitive, heavy-handed ways of doing this, and there are kind of incentive-based, voluntary-based ways of doing it. Right. And I would argue that the GST was very much a latter because the way GST was meant to work in terms of formalization was very simple. Right. It was not that anyone forced you to register uh, because the thresholds were recently high, but because big firms would have an incentive to buy from other formal firms in order to get this input tax credit and, and all of that, that would kind of encourage and incentivize the informal sector to become formal, right? So it was very much a nudge-based, incentive-based, voluntary, uh, you know, based way of doing it, and therefore less heavy-handed, and therefore something that I think was actually desirable. I mean, obviously, there are going to be transitional costs, but that was very different from the earlier episode of demonetization, which was a very kind of heavy-handed, you know, uh, you know, kind of uh, using sticks rather than carrots to formalize. 
And so I think that, I think, would be, for me, the distinction to make, that one, yes, mostly the causation flows from uh, development to formalization. Two, however, it's not bad to try and tap the reverse causation. But if you have to do it, you have to do it through nudges and incentives rather than through sticks and heavy-handed methods because the costs then are, are very high if you do it through sticks. So, I mean, I, I would like to explore this a little further, but in the interest of time, I want to move to the <laughs> next theme I on which I want to get your perspective. Uh, this is on this question of self-reliance or which has become a buzzword in the last few years. And again, in some ways, it's kind of a reaction to the uh, old order where it, it, it is argued that we had opened up too soon, too too much, and now we need to kind of hunker down, develop our capabilities. And there are different kind of uh, strands that are coming out of it. Of course, protectionism, uh, in especially through tariffs. Uh, then there is, of course, fiscal measures on pro- which are aimed at improving, increasing domestic production. And there is more recently support for certain large domestic firms especially in their competition with foreign firms. And it comes through in subtle ways in implicit and explicit policy measures. But as a picture, I mean, given where India is in its terms of economic complexity and the kind of export successes it has had, does this kind of a uh, pivot overall make sense to you? I mean, is there anything to be said about it at all in the big picture sense? Yeah, so, so, yeah. so, so I think, uh, you know, to be fair, uh, Suyash, I think we have to understand what is the kind of, you know, deeper basis for this pivot, right? I mean, because after all, policymakers are not stupid. I mean, they, they, they have their logic and reasons for doing this. And I think, you know, Shomitra Chatji and I wrote a piece. I think it's, you know, it's based on, uh, I think, two or three things. I think one, I think it's just based on completely misreading the previous 20 years. You know, there's all this thing about, you know, our 90s and 2000s growth was based on consumption. I, I mean, uh, you know, people forget that the 90s and 2000s was based very much on exports and investment. And we've kind of a little bit forgotten that lesson that, you know, uh, it's true that it's not the right kind of exports, but it was very much, you know, as Shomitra and I, we were stunned by the fact that in the 25 years from the 90s to 20, you know, 16, 17, India had the third fastest manufacturing export growth in the world. So it's like we forgot that we were successful. And, you know, it's partly trade itself that drove our, our growth. And it's kind of like a forgetting that lesson. Second, I think, is... You know, and this is where I think this comes from very high up and, 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 and it's kind of the general zeitgeist. You know, it's like the notion that India's success has bred the belief that India is a big market. That's why even, you know, today if you read Andy Mukherjee's piece, for example, which, he, which you know, he draws upon the work that Shomitra and I did, people genuinely think that India is a big market and therefore we can afford to ignore the world. You know, that, you know, what we've had so many years of growth, you know, uh, you know this famous, you know, demography, demand and, and uh, you know, demography and demand that, you know, we have a big population and so on. And, and you know, and I think there, uh, you know, we did this, uh, uh, st- you know, this estimated the size of the Indian market. It's actually not very big. I think people forget that the Indian market is something like, you know, it's a rough estimate, half a trillion. The world market is you know, 20 trillion. So, so the notion that, you know, therefore you are big convinces you that you can ignore the world. I think that's kind of the second kind of, uh, uh, slight uh, misunderstanding. And of course, third, uh, is that when things slow down generally around the world, 
uh, you know, you you tend to think that, you know, uh, it's because of trade and foreign uh, competition and so on. So that's the kind of, it's an, it's almost like a natural t- a corollary of uh, a slowdown and weakness in economic activity that you get, you know, some combination of both the rise of identity politics and you get, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the inward turn, uh, economically, because after all, the inward turn political and economic are related. And to me, that's a lot of it is due to weakness in the economy as well. So three factors, you know, we forgot our experience with dynamic experts. We 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 uh, overstate how big we are, and third, you know, uh, weakness leads to economic and political nationalism, and that's where I think it's coming from. Now, turning to the specific strategies that seem to be deployed uh, in this pivot, uh, one is of course protectionism. So, as you showed in your paper, also the increase in tariffs. Uh, uh, second is this kind of production-linked incentives, not export-linked. So it's really, I mean up to the firm to produce and the discipline of uh, competitiveness into exports is yep. not quite there in the design of the schemes. And the third is this uh, support for specific firms, which is not a new thing in the East Asian model. Also, you see quite a few countries actually supporting certain companies, but it, I, I'm reminded of this meeting that General Park used yep. to have where the targets are usually export related, right? Like you need to achieve success in the world, not just get a captive market domestically. So in all these three things, do you yeah. think enough is being done to ensure that the outcomes are something which cannot, cannot be easily gamed in the system? You know? Yeah, you see, see, yeah. so I, I think, you know, I, you raised General Park, uh, by the way, uh, you know that when he took over, he's, he, there's a, there was a national, I think, holiday called Export Day i.e. they used to celebrate exports as annually they would say you know how have we done on exports they used to be general park allowed announce an export holiday that's how obsessed they were with exports but but here's i think um, see what is common to uh, the industrial and trade policy on the one side okay this uh, and the promoting of national champions if i wanted to draw a parallel is the uh, uh, lack of ex, uh, focus on exports, as you rightly said. But it takes two different forms. And let me explain, and this is important. On the tariffs and the production-linked incentives, it's like, as you said, uh, apart from all the things that associate with government intervention and you know the bureaucracy, Raj, all of that, uh, the two problems with that are, uh, you know, there is no real discipline on exports, Right. Um, and everything ex- encourages uh, import substitution. Uh, so, so that's kind of uh, and and with the production linked incentives, uh, you see that most of the incentives have been given to capital and technology intensive sectors, high skill sectors, and not to labor intensive sectors. So, so in a sense, you're perpetuating that uh, you know uh, 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 you know uh, unusual comparative advantage, and there's no discipline on 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 export performance which is what distinguishes it from uh, Korea. Now, but on the national champion side, uh, Suyash, there I think it's a little bit different and tricky, which is that what is for me very uh, unique about, you know, the, the two A's and, and the national champions, uh, you know, uh, it's broader than, the, than than a few groups, but let's just, for the sake of argument, think, think of it in terms of things, is one the 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 the, the um, 
scope and reach of the national champions that are being promoted is unprecedented. It's kind of, if you look at the sectors that they, it's almost every sector. That was not true for the Korean Chebols or the Zambians, by the way. It was, but, but, but even more important, and this is the key difference, they are almost all in non-tradable sectors. And that is why, by definition, you cannot have export discipline. That's why it's much more prone to regulatory kind of, you know, you know arbitrage, regulatory kind of favors, because almost by definition, you can't test it to the, uh, you know, you cannot say, you know, are they being, uh, inter- I mean, it's worth paying the price for national champions with the Che Bowls because they were exporting gangbusters. Here, by definition, if you're in non-tradables, by definition, you know, you can't really uh, think. And on top of that, we know what the consequences for other firms have been because of promoting national champions. You've really created a situation where the investment climate for those who are not in favor, it becomes much more arbitrary and unstable. So the combination of being in non-tradable sectors where there's no, where even if you wanted to, you cannot have this export discipline really, uh, plus the fact that, you know, uh, you, you really drive, uh, you know, competition, uh, uh, you know, down. Uh, it's the combination of these two that so so the commonality in all these really uh, uh, the way you phrased it is actually very nice that you don't have this uh, market test of you know efficiency and competition that stems from being internationally competitive although for different reasons in one case you design it it's a it's a tradable sector but you design it to promote import substitution without any discipline on exports in the other case uh, you know almost by definition because you operate in non-tradable sectors that export discipline is absent yeah so yeah i think uh, these points make a lot of sense to me at least because looking at what has worked in Indian India's own past and in other countries, I mean, lessons have to be drawn to design the policies. And I'm sure they're thinking about it and trying to improvise as, as they go, go along. Now, uh, if, yeah, yeah. if you were to kind of, again, you've written about it, but I, it's good to discuss it on a podcast as well, that uh, these two big problems that we have, a revival of private investment and, and improving our export performance. Uh, what are the kind of key pillars that should be in place? And I read your recent uh, seminar art, article as well, in which you draw this distinction between hardware and software and the problems of software in Indian policy making. What is the kind of uh, big picture that you have in terms of the key political economy and institutional priorities that we need to address to be able to make progress on those fronts? You know, um, you know, Suyash, you know. Uh, by definition, software is kind of a little bit fuzzy, right? It's both fuzzy and it is also much more difficult to address, right? I mean, and that's what, that's why it's software, you know, hardware is you build stuff and, you know, uh, you reap the benefits. But what we mean by software is, you know, the broader policy framework and, uh, you know, the policy making process itself. Now, give you three or four examples, right? First, you know, data integrity. We need good data across the board. You know, that's the basis for policy making. You know, if you take the COVID pandemic, India is one of those few countries where, you know, scientists, etc., society at large did not have access to the data. And, and so by definition, your policy response is not, you know, if you, if you go to Twitter and say monitor, 
you know, what's happening in Omicron in you know, other countries. It's like in real time, people are doing research and putting out the results. That's so valuable for policymaking. You know, in India, it's like, you know, you don't have the data. Nobody, you know, maybe something is being done. So I think data integrity, quality is, is a first pillar. Second, I, I think, is this, you know, the whole question we've discussed about a level playing field, and, and we've discussed that uh, to some extent. The third, which I feel very strongly is kind of, you know, uh, inclusive, participatory decision making, right? I mean, you know, GST got done for all its flaws. GST was a real tribute to cooperative federalism between the center and the states. But in other areas, like whether it's, you know, farm laws or whether it's, you know, response to the lockdown, you know, it's been very kind of uh, unilateral and done. So, so once you get into that, you know, the kind of trust between various actors in Indian society, whether, you know, it's the state, you know, the, the federal, the central government and the state governments, trust there, whether it's between the central government and investors because of, you know, not having rule of law and, and things, or between you know, the state and citizens, you know, when all these things kind of start breaking down, I, I mean, that's what we mean by software. So it's these slightly fuzzy imponderables, but which are, you know, no less important for creating a climate for investment. Last one, last thing I would say on, on the Atmanirbharta thing is, you know, there is something that I I, I think we have a real opportunity, uh, Suyasha. I mean, obviously, it would require reversal of policy on you know on tariffs and and you know not joining agreements, whatever, whatever, or including the software, of course. But here's I think a thought I want to leave with you, right? Shamitra and I said, you know, the first big opportunity that was created for India and indeed for the rest of the world was after the global financial crisis. China was becoming richer, uh, wages were rising. And so, you know, labor intensive activity was leaving China. We said that's about $150 billion. And India got very little of that. Most of that went to Vietnam and Bangladesh and Indonesia and places. But here's the interesting thing. There's a second and a third opportunity that's been created. What are those? You know, in the pandemic, you'll see that Vietnam and now China, they've gone in for the zero COVID policy, which means that their production and export capability has been badly affected. And, you know, even today, there's a piece in the Financial Times which says, you know, Chinese uh, export capability, because if you're going to, you know, kind of hunker down on a zero COVID policy, obviously your manufacturing and, you know, any kind of uh, contact intensive activity is going to uh, thing. So that creates a kind of second opportunity uh, for countries like India. And, 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 and of course, the third opportunity is that, you know, uh, Vietnam, by definition, is too small to handle all the uh, space vacated by China. So there's kind of a, a, a pandemic created opportunity that's a new opportunity that's ir- arisen. And I really think this is where India should, you know, maybe, you know, kind of a little bit uh, reassess its policy, uh, you know, m- focus much more on these labor intensive activities, you know, woo foreign investors, convince them you have an open environment, you know, get into markets which are going to be important. Because remember, if you want to attract someone, uh, say, a, 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 a footwear or a clothing exporter, 
He wants to come not to export to it, to produce for the Indian market. He wants to produce for the Chinese market and the, you know, and the Japanese market, the Korean market and the broader Asian Pacific market, which means that, you know, if you stay away from the agreements, that's going to be an additional disincentive. So I think there we have an opportunity. It requires some uh, you know, a reassessment of policy, it requires a much more, you know, active, uh, uh, you know, government to kind of woo the kind of right kind of investments for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And this software has to develop as you go along, right? Because each stage of development has its own demands for the kind of software it requires. I mean, Douglas North used to uh, use a kind of a broad term called adaptive efficiency, which was the ability of societies to basically adjust to the changes that are happening in reality, you know, whether it's a shock or new kind of institutions or technology is developing, can you adjust or not? And some countries are higher in adaptive efficiency. It's something that keeps, you have to keep building up. Yeah, exactly. And this is primarily what I guess software is about that you're talking about. So, you know, he used to say, in, he said it in his Nobel Prize speech also that development is a long process, yeah. you know, and he meant development broadly, not just about economic yeah. growth but also broader development of society, political, social development. And it takes a lot of time. Uh, so India's, uh, I mean, per capita income, going by the Madison data, is where the American uh, I mean, per capita GDP was in the late 19th century. And some of these Eastern East Asian countries and some other countries also in Africa and elsewhere have shown that you can rapidly converge, right? Like you can go, to, go on a... Uh, a high growth episode and within a generation you can uh, close a lot of this gap not all of it but much of it the gap which creates its own social and political challenges there's a lot of disruption things fall apart you know center cannot hold so if you could, we could end on kind of a note about how you see india's journey you know broader economic development journey within that situate the kind of economic growth story that we have uh, and which has, seems to have kind of uh, suffered a few setbacks in the recent years, which we're trying to revive and we talked about it a little bit. But in the broader, long process of development, mm -hmm. where, where is India right now and where, I mean, where should we uh, aspire to be maybe a generation from now? See, uh, it's a great question. And, you know, uh, uh, at the risk of becoming expansive, I think we need to step back, uh, Suyasha. See, if you, if you look back at the sweep of, you know, the last 200, 300 years, you've broadly find two successful models of economic and political, both broader development, right? One was the kind of the West, right? Or the West and, and Japan to some extent. Uh, it was a very, you know, steady uh, economic progress and political development that also co-evolved, but slowly. You know, you had the franchise being extended slowly a long time. And, you know, basically the West grew at about two and a half percent for 250 years. And that's where they are today. Right. And so it's a modest, uh, you know, steady economic growth uh, and political and economic development co-evolving uh, uh, as the franchise gets extended. Then you have the East Asian model, uh, which is really accelerated, abbreviated uh, economic development, very rapid. And a, a sequence where, you know, economic development comes first and then political development either follows in the case of Korea, Taiwan, uh, to some extent, Singapore, or doesn't follow at all in the case of China. So these are two kind of broad models of, you know, development, steady, slow, co-evolving economic and political, abbreviated but sequential where e economic development comes first. Now, India, of course, is a complete uh, outlier. It conforms to neither. 
because, you know, it, it's trying to do accelerated economic development, but where politically, at least democracy came first and, you know, uh, kind of it's been trying to do economic development, but always with, you know, uh, with either the benefit or the burden of, of democracy, depending on your point of view. So it's a very sui generis model. And, and that's why I think in the long sweep of history, we have to, you know, make allowance for that fairly unique path of, of development. Now, in that path has, you know, uh, India succeeded, failed. I, I think the kind of the jury is out, right? I mean, you know, I, I would argue that, um, that this unique path, you know, while it has delivered some major successes, you know, uh, you know, people have voice, people can vote, people can express themselves, etc., uh, etc. Et and also, I think people forget that the, the bigger achievement of that was, you know, a broad modicum of order, what Huntington would call order, you know, broad, you know, uh, avoiding extreme instability. You know, I'd like to say rather than saying stability, we avoid income. And so, you know, those were the big achievements. But then, you know, the economic and social achievements have kind of lagged behind. And so uh, Rohit Lamba and I have a piece saying, you know, India is a case of, uh, you know, dynamism with incommensurate development. And, and clearly the fact of our unique moral democracy may have something to do with this uh, as well. And also it may have to do with the fact, with a point that Devesh Kapoor often makes, that, you know, it's also society. We have this baggage of, you know, caste, religion, all of that stuff, right? So to try and navigate development where, you know, you're committed to democracy, you have this baggage of, you know, historical uh, cleavages arising from the way society is organized. So navigating that path is, is you know, is proving to be difficult. But then, you know, it's very unfair to think or unrealistic to think that it would be anything but development. A provocative point I want to make is that, you know, or, or at least for consideration is that while democracy has given us a lot, uh, the open question is whether it's also been a, a burden in some respects, you know, whether it has to do with the fact that we've had to do redistribution very early, whether, you know, kind of uh, the inheritance and democracy meant that, you know, property rights are kind of uh, not quite as sacrosanct as elsewhere. And whether, for example, when we get into policies, you know, exiting from policies is extra difficult because of the kind of, you know, uh, commitment to democracy that we have. I mean, these are all kind of open questions. So I think India is very much a kind of, you know, sui generis model. Uh, and, you know, we'll just have to uh, wait and see, uh, you know, uh, history's verdict. Uh, but but I, I think it's fair to say that it's been set back a little bit this last decade. And, uh, you know, whatever your criterion, uh, I think it's fair to say on, on all those criteria, there's been a setback. But I think, you know, uh, uh, as, uh, you know, uh, the famous phrase of uh, Brodel, right? La longue durée d'histoire. I mean, this is uh, 10 years is nothing in the, you know, broad sweep of history. Uh, uh, you know, we'll have to see. Uh, maybe, Suyash, when you do this podcast with uh, uh, a, a more intelligent, more thoughtful uh, economist 25 years down the road, uh, you know, you may have some clearer answers. Yeah, I mean, th thank you for that perspective. And I, I, I agree with you that we have to chart our own uh, path in this long journey. And it is going to be a long journey. Just one final question to you, sir. If there is one book on economic growth that you would uh, recommend to our uh, listeners, which book would that be? Ah, I see. You know, uh, 
can i can i recommend more than one you know you know i i have a, a whole reading list maybe you you can direct uh, uh, your listeners to that i i i can send you the link to that um you know i mean you have to st- i mean uh, you have to read jared diamond i, I think there's no uh a uh, doubt about that you have to read uh, jared diamond uh, i would recommend also you know uh, you know uh, studwell's book on asia which i think is is a very good uh, analysis of the east asian growth experience um i, I would also also recommend you know uh, piketty's capital and ideology for a you know kind of a broad sweep of the whole issues surrounding you know imperialism inequality you know capital uh, the unequal ownership of capital and stuff i think th- that's kind of a a, a really interesting uh, book as well and and another book which i like a lot is ian morris's why the west rules for now um i, I think it has a very interesting uh, discussion of uh, china and and the west also so i think these are all uh, some uh, i think very good books on that uh, i know i'm missing some really important ones but uh, uh for no we share the list uh, on on our podcast and uh, we'll give a link below that So thank you so much Dr Subram for joining us today it's been a very insightful discussion and uh, uh, thank you have a good day uh, thanks Yash for having me yeah thanks for uh, uh, really uh, really insightful thoughtful questions i, I think that uh, there, there were some things that came up new even in my own thinking as we went along so thanks for that We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at CarnegieIndia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.